on this season, we'll be exploring our bizarre beliefs, unfounded fears, and fantastical thinking, how they shape our psychology and culture, and how much of our past we can find in the present. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. I mean, you could take these in the Chicago area right now and ask about anything you want. You can't find it. Somebody in the crowd yelled, there's the Elmos, and they rushed us. I don't like them. <laughs> I don't like them. I don't like their faces, but I want one. I remember my first Beanie Baby vividly. Bones the dog, a simple light brown stuffed animal filled with beans instead of fluff. After a quick scan of the tag, I tore it off immediately, the heart-shaped tag that contained a unique birth date and a poem for each animal, the hearts that would eventually fill the hopeful eyes of American kids and adults alike. There was a kind of love in ripping off a tag, an initiation into a time-honored plush intimacy. Cue the madness of the lights and sounds of Chuck E. Cheese on a weekend afternoon, a single child, me swimming through the pond of plastic balls, some perfectly round, others crushed under the weight of a foot, sadly oblong among the primary colors that called so many of us to them with a silent incantation. Bones and I were kicking it tough, diving down and almost swimming through the pizza-greased pit until suddenly it happened. He was in my hand, and then he wasn't. Bones was lost in the vastness, in the void, alone, afraid, I imagine, because I knew somehow he could feel just like I could. Desperately, I clawed through the balls for upwards of an hour, my dad even climbing in, tears rolling down my face. And then, eventually, we left. Then we came back because I was so dramatically heartbroken. I went back in, determined never to leave a brother behind. And an hour later, I shot my arm under the surface, and there he was, my fingers brushing against his fur, pulling him out triumphantly and holding him above my head like an underdog's trophy. I loved Bones, truly. It was a simple love. But slowly my interest in these lovable babies, our collective interest in them, changed. Tags stayed on, protected by a heart-shaped plastic case. Some, like the much-touted Princess Diana Memorial Bear, sat under bell jars, kept from the very air around them. They were no longer just lovable toys. They were an investment. First, it was Cabbage Patch dolls in the early 1980s, a toy mania like the world had never seen. Punches swung in aisles, broken bones and kids trampled underfoot. In the next decade, Tickle Me Elmo would inspire riots in toy stores and parking lots, where adults, including my granny, who we'll hear from later, fought tooth and nail for the laughing, vibrating doll. There seemed to be a hot new toy each Christmas, one that everyone had to have, and one that, conveniently, became more and more rare, more and more impossible to get. By the late 1990s, the aforementioned Beanie Babies would inspire robbery, counterfeit rings, and even a murder. 
We're all familiar with this hunger. Every Thanksgiving, we watch the news, or perhaps we show up at the stores ourselves, seeing the Black Friday crowds screaming, trampling, tearing products from the stiff arms of one another, as if in a post-apocalyptic battle for precious resources. This season's been pretty intense so far, don't you think? And so for this episode, we're really gonna do it, people. We're gonna have fun. I'll try to explore just what it is about certain toys that have led adults to actually trample the very children the toys were made for, their little arms bloodied, broken hearts sinking in their crying eyes. Toys are, and always have been, a vital part of children's development. In all times and all cultures, they are tools of play that facilitate growing and learning through the mimicking of adult behaviors. Even without manufactured toys, children will always turn sticks into imaginary friends, an explorer's walking staff, a bow and arrow, or most often here in America, a gun. Before the European settlers spread out across the nation, each indigenous tribe had unique toys, often dolls made from corn husks and miniature versions of hunting tools. Children were taught basket weaving and beadwork, and these served as early training for their future in the community while still being a form of entertainment and fun. The Protestant children who came later would bring with them a tradition of time-consuming and labor-intensive creations made from leather and wood, often a horse that rocked. Like we talked about in our season one episode called Teenage Sex, childhood as we understand it, the innocence, the value of imagination, the emotional and physical freedom to define their own personalities, was essentially created for the middle and upper classes by romantic poets and philosophers in the Victorian era. When the early 20th century labor laws barred the youth from exploitation in industrial factories, more space opened up for lower class kids as well to just be kids. But as child mortality rates dropped, an obsession with the family unit grew intense, as it was, in fact, the safest way to ensure the prosperity of their children's future, and in turn, their own. Fad toys, or toys that are mass-produced and then rise in sudden popularity, have existed since the Industrial Revolution, as low-cost materials and labor allowed one kind of toy to be produced thousands of times over. In the 1930s and 40s, as the Depression widened the gap between rich and poor, jump rope, brought over by Dutch immigrants, became the most popular toy for all the kids, distinguished only by how fancy the handles were. The rise of a hungry capitalism meant that these family units, as well as their kids and teenagers, began to be defined by the things that they owned. By the middle of 1958, as the middle class grew, so did the market for entertainment, as bored teenagers created a need for more and more distraction. Seeing how fads could become a get-rich-quick scheme for inventors, new toys were introduced and advertised as vital to being, essentially, part of the in-group and holding a high place in the social order. 
gender toys like Barbie in the Easy Bake Oven, as well as war-glorifying G.I. Joe in the collection of cool Hot Wheels cars, smacked of the era's entrenched values, as well as what we believed children needed to learn about our culture through their play. Come the early 1980s, the American economy would dip into a bad recession with rapid job loss, foreclosures, and homelessness. But by 1983, things were looking up, and with a little more disposable income, it seemed that every child in the nation had to have this hot new toy. And even more than that, it seemed that adults were hoping to keep riding the prosperous economic wave with what they called collectibles and what they also called investments. Welcome to another holiday shopping season. When the doors opened at this Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania store, the pushing and shoving began. One woman was knocked to the floor and suffered a broken leg. The first truly aggressive, riotous hysteria over a toy came in the year that stores began stocking a particularly apple-cheeked baby doll with colored yarn hair and bright eyes, wide and desperate for love. The rugged creator of Cabbage Patch Dolls was a man by the name of Xavier Roberts, a Georgia-born businessman in his early 20s, his cheeks rough with a dark brown beard, often wearing a tan cowboy hat and boots. For some reason, Roberts signed his name on the butt of each and every little person, as they were originally and now problematically called. The whimsical story penned by Roberts and told to children about the origin of their Cabbage Patch Dolls went like this. Xavier Roberts was a 10-year-old boy who discovered the Cabbage Patch Kids by following a bunny bee behind a waterfall into a magical Cabbage Patch, where he found the Cabbage Patch babies being born. To help them find good homes, he built Babyland General in Cleveland, Georgia, where the Cabbage Patch Kids could live and play until they were adopted. In order to flesh out this somewhat terrifying and retrospect magical hospital, Roberts created a novelty store out of an actual medical clinic that had been closed down. As mentioned, he called it Babyland General Hospital, and the sales clerks were actually required to dress in nurse uniforms and treat the dolls as if they were actual newborn infants who laid motionless in both cribs and incubators. Part of the appeal of these dolls was that each came with a birth certificate, adoption papers, and even a unique name found in Georgia's birth records from 1938. But the real story is a little less quaint, as of course you might imagine. Roberts actually appropriated the design from an independent artist named Martha Nelson Thomas in the early 1970s, after she refused his offer to mass-produce her dolls. She simply hadn't even thought to patent her design as she sat at small craft fairs, happily content with just focusing on her art. So what did Xavier Roberts do? Well, of course he plucked the design from her, and by the late 1970s, his little people were born, eventually renamed Cabbage Patch Dolls. When Jane Pauley, a pregnant Today Show host, mused about the dolls in 1983, it was on. The dolls became a craze, a sensation, and eventually a hysteria. They sold out in record time and then were hucked for several times the price in a kind of underground market. Customers camped overnight and then poured into the stores, pushing and trampling, even breaking arms while grabbing at the cardboard boxes. People threw punches and were hit with purses, and in one Texas news report, a woman was choked with a purse strap while still hugging a box tightly to her chest. 
In this video that you're about to hear, a store manager stands up on a table above a screaming crowd, throwing cardboard boxes into the sea of people the way a bride might throw a bouquet. That same year, a radio host out of Wisconsin made an on-air joke that a B-29 bomber would be dropping thousands of Cabbage Patch kids into a local stadium. A group of people actually showed up. Scalpers were reselling at six times the retail price, leading parents to see them as a possible investment. By the end of 1983, at age 26, Roberts became a millionaire and created a template for the toy riots that were to come in the next decade. Well, it's this year's Toy Story, a red furry doll that giggles a lot. Tickle me Elmo. <laughs> no wonder he's laughing. All the way to the bank because North America has been gripped by tickle-me-elmo hysteria. Oh, boy, that tickles. During the Christmas season of 1996, I was eight years old, and I had a little brother who my granny decided must have the hottest toy of the season. That's right, tickle-me-elmo. There was a sudden and confusingly rabid hunger for one red, furry, vibrating, hysterical muppet. My granny is a fierce one, not to be fucked with, and she was determined to face the crowds at Toys R Us. She would not allow my brother to be Tickle Me elmo the coming Christmas morning. Not for her life. Let's hear a little from her. And here with my granny, Sheila, who was dedicated to getting that Tickle Me Elmo, right? Well, I used to call uh, all the stores and go into all the stores, and I used to call periodically Toys R Us. And I called them up one day, and they said they'd be in the next day. The Tickle and, Me Elmo. Yeah, the Tickle yeah. Me Elmo. And I called the store, and they said they'd come in, but they'd been sold. Okay. And then they called me back to say that someone had not collected one, and there was one left. Okay. So immediate, but I had to get right out yeah. there. So Ray, my husband, and I, we drove right out there, got to the store, and went up to the uh, counter, the customer service, and uh, I could see Elmo laying on a shelf, uh -huh. and uh, this there was a woman standing there who worked in the store, and she said, oh, whose Elmo is that? And they said, well, someone had bought it back. They didn't want it. So she said, well, I'll take it. Mm -hmm. So I immediately said, oh, no, that's mine. I called up, and they said they'd save it for me. So I did end up with Elmo. I used to have it in my bed when I was a kid, and it would go off in the middle of the night and wake me up. Scare the hell out of me. Yeah, it's pretty terrifying. Well, Granny got us the important toy that we wanted every year, didn't you? Every year. Every year I was asked for something that was just so hard Except that one. Do you remember the Beanie Babies, too? I don't think anyone beat anything beat me in the end, yeah? I don't think so. I don't think so. I got everything. Furbies, was it? Furbies? Yeah. Furbies. Furbies. Furbies, yeah. The Teletubbies, mm -hmm. everything. Oh, everything. <laughs> the inspiration for Tycho's Elmo doll came when toy inventors Greg Hyman and Rob Dubrin saw children tickling each other and laughing at a local playground. The toy started out as Tickles the Chimp and then transitioned into my personal favorite Looney Tune, Tickles the Tasmanian Devil, and eventually encompassed Bugs Bunny and Tweety as Tickle Me toys as well. When the contract fell through with Looney Tunes, Tycho turned their attention to Sesame Street, which was struggling to stay afloat after the recent death of their creator, Jim Henson. 
Sales of the toy were modest, that is, until another 90s staple, Rosie O'Donnell, partnered with Tycho and promoted the dolls on her show, throwing them out into the audience, much like she constantly launched koosh balls. Remember those? Rosie, though she's now known most prominently for her public feud with the leader of the free world, was a serious trendsetter back in the late 1990s. And soon, to the relative shock of the Tyco company, stores were selling out. Thanksgiving's Black Friday saw the Elmos disappear within hours, with one Target selling out in just four minutes. The Baltimore Sun commented on the phenomenon, quote, Tickle Me Elmo suddenly seemed vital to one's existence, even if one didn't actually know what he is or what he does. Soon, just like the Cabbage Patch craze, things got even uglier. In Chicago, two women were arrested when they broke out into a fist fight. New Yorkers swamped delivery trucks, sometimes chasing after them down the streets. In Denver, a doll went for over seven grand. A Walmart employee, quote, suffered a pulled hamstring, injuries to his back, jaw and knee, a broken rib and concussion. But even Tickle Me Elmo couldn't hold his own against the hottest toy fad in the history of America, delivering to my sticky hands, my true love, Bones the Dog, as well as many others I'd never dare to play with. Ty Warner was the eccentric, plastic surgery-obsessed creator behind Beanie Babies, a man who met with clients by arriving in a white Rolls Royce, adorned with a full-length fur coat and a decorative cane. Warner cared a lot about his product. He once trimmed and brushed each individual stuffed animal until, of course, the great national desperation for the simple creatures made it impossible to keep that up. Beanie Babies were first manufactured in 1993 to mediocre sales, sitting in happy piles, relegated to the dusty shelves of hobby shops and smaller toy stores. The Beanie Baby craze as we know it was started in the living rooms of one Chicago suburb as a handful of middle and upper class neighbors discovered that they each had a modest collection of Beanie Babies. They started trading, trying to discern the value of each by rarity, creating a swapping system together, Two Tabasco the Bulls for one Kiwi the Toucan. When they couldn't find the rarer animals to complete their collections, they began contacting toy stores and gift shops out of state, willing to pay a lot more money than the $5 toys were selling for. Somehow, word spread that these sought-after stuffed animals were worth much more than the general population was aware of. And then, seemingly from thin air, Beanie Babies became symbols of future prosperity. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your 
your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week. And you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And now, back to the show. Peggy Gallagher got in on the ground floor, paying for $2,000 worth of Beanie Babies and selling them to the untapped German market for a whopping $300,000. Adults all over America heard this mythical tale, this get-rich-quick scheme that promised college funds and bigger houses, prestige. Beanie Babies happened to coincide with the bidding site of eBay, where people could do essentially what that small group in the Chicago suburbs once did, except on a national and even global scale, and this time for cash. At one point, they accounted for 10% of all items sold on eBay, becoming the first worldwide craze in the age of the internet. Ty Warner saw an opportunity in a collector culture that had all but invented itself, something known as speculative capitalism. He increased demand by retiring older Beanie Babies at will and introducing new ones at random, stoking the idea that they were scarce and valuable. This caused the eBay market to explode, thus adding to the allure of these valuable plush bags of beans. The original Beanie Babies took out no ads on television or other media, leading to the feeling that you were stumbling onto something important, onto the Beanie Baby craze, that you were ahead of the others. Anyone remember the jingle that glints in the recesses of my subconscious? Here it is. Teeny Beanie Babies at McDonald's, teeny beanies. No one that I've talked to can remember this, and I can find no evidence anywhere online, so if you remember this jingle, please reach out so I don't feel when these miniature Beanie Babies became the newest toy in McDonald's Happy Meals, the drive through lines, as well as the restaurants themselves, were absolutely stuffed with people who often ordered several Happy Meals at once, sometimes telling the employees to just keep the food. The first promotion was supposed to last five weeks, but by the two-week mark, all 100 million toys had been cleared out. McDonald's went on to cancel the ads that were supposed to continue for the following three weeks over their reasonable concern that, quote, massive crowds were putting employees' safety in jeopardy. The rarest of the teeny beanie babies began selling for a whopping $100,000. The media began reporting on the mundane lives of collectors in stories like that of the wards in Philadelphia, whose collection had reached 500. They reportedly ate three Happy Meals per day in order to collect them all. Her daughter said of her concerns for her mother's strange obsession, quote, She buys them clothes. They have them all over the house. She just bought the one in the kitchen, a special chef's outfit. 
Counterfeit Beanie Babies were detained at the border, seized by customs officials. At one point, 17,000 fake toys were confiscated in Orlando, Florida. Scams popped up everywhere, costing the less discerning collectors thousands of dollars. In one case, more than eight collectors were scammed out of 12 grand when a woman named Melissa Stiver, bless her heart, started promising the rare and retired Chili the Polar Bear for $1,200 a pop. As time passed, Stiver used up all the money without delivering the goods. When local sheriff's investigator Ray Briggs got involved, he had this to say. Well, people didn't get their bears, she told them some story about how she'd been in a car wreck and broken her legs. But when we got there, she was walking, talking, chewing gum. When they couldn't reach an agreement, a judge famously ordered a divorcing couple to split their Beanie Baby collection right there on the courtroom floor. A six-year-old girl was knocked to the ground, her leg bloodied, at the first-ever Beanie Baby swap. A man known as the Beanie Baby Bandit, who stole 200 of them from a stationery store, was apprehended after several weeks of news coverage and police attempting to hunt him down. There's even a little-known Beanie Baby-inspired murder that occurred in October 1999, when a 29-year-old man named Jeffrey White shot and killed 63-year-old security guard Harry Simmons. Part of the conflict centered on Beanie Babies that were lent to Jeffrey by Harry in order to start a trading company of their own, the lot worth hundreds of dollars and apparently worth a murder charge. When Ty Warner announced that Beanie Babies would cease production altogether, it was because he knew that the craze was too big to last. People panicked, tried to sell off their collection to a suddenly disinterested nation. The value that was decided only by the people involved in the market plummeted. All our promising collections became useless, now discarded to attics and basements, lining the folding tables of yard sales, sold to zero customers, as I found out when I asked a Beanie Baby vendor at the Puyallup Fair last year, where I bought two just because I was sad. What happened was the chat room actually got flooded. Leonard Tannenbaum's Beanie Nation website was overwhelmed with mournful messages like, the end is coming. To them, this is really affecting their life more than most things that you guys have on the news. This, to them, is everything. Okay, so why on earth, God why oh why, did these hysterias happen to us in the 80s and 90s? One easy explanation, of course, is the internet. Cabbage Patch Kids were only available in stores, could only be sold in direct deals. But eventually, the internet ramped up a secondary market. It created an economy all its own. But why do we fight for something that truly has no value at all? Case in point, the pet rock craze of 1975, when 1.5 million Americans paid $4 each for a literal rock in a cardboard box with air holes, simply because the idea of it was kinda cute. We all worship at the altar of money, which at its very core is no different from the empty value of a fad toy, of a pet rock. Not to get all fight club about it, but money is just pieces of green paper. It's just numbers on a screen. It's just little units of power that we have endowed with ultimate meaning. Deciding everything from whether a person can afford food and shelter to whether they can collect private jets or throw enormous parties on decadent yachts. Money, more than anything else, decides how a person's life will unfold what pain and what privilege they will face daily. 
I was privileged enough to have my toy dreams fulfilled, to have enough money, essentially, to waste. Enough privilege to contemplate the void inside us all that money attempts to fill, to go to school to contemplate the void inside me, to have my middle-class dreams and maybe your middle-class dreams pointlessly fulfilled. They're the same avid collectors who've bid the price for Peanut the Elephant up to $5,000. But isn't, isn't that cute? Where would you rather have, a, car, a new car or Peanut the Elephant? <laughs> but also, many of these trends, I think, could relate to something else, something a little more adorable. There have been so many studies confirming that humans have an implicit bias toward babies, with brain scans lighting up in a burst in the area that relates to reward as soon as we see them. This drive causes us to suddenly give all our attention to the child, and by age three, it seems we're programmed also to care for them. This is partly because our intensive care for our young, a trait easily favored by natural selection, also seems to spill out over into a care for other baby animals that share similar features. Big eyes, big heads, playful movements, and unsteady walking, which together form what is known as the baby schema. Human babies need care for a lot longer than other mammals, making our cute bias much more important. All you have to do is look at our culture's obsessive love of kittens and puppies to see this bias in action, as well as the long timeline of breeding them smaller, less threatening, more infantile, dependent, and of course, adorable. I believe we can see it too in our love of cute toys, and we can see it even in their names. Cabbage Patch Kids, Beanie Babies, and Tickle Me Elmo, which is essentially a baby animal mimicking the wild laugh of a toddler. In a sense, it seems we want to save these little babies. The way I wanted to win games at the fair so I could save those cute animals hanging from hooks. I felt desperate to save them, to care for them, to give them a good life, the same way I felt about bones. It's like they're all my children. Each and every Toy Story film still makes me weep. It still makes my mom weep, and it still makes my brother weep too, the brother who got the Tickle Me Elmo. That's right, research assistant Riley Smith. Could this baby schema help explain the creepy birthing center for the Cabbage Patch dolls, images of infant care as we've come to know them? Could it help explain the way we care for beanie babies, keeping them safe and in mint condition, letting nothing near them that could be fatal to their future value? You had to care for your Tamagotchi, those little keychain pets that could die if you left them at home during school hours. You had to teach Furby how to speak. You had to put it to sleep. Pokemon cards, essentially tiny animals, were traded on the playground like precious stones, the way gold once was before our system of paper money reigned supreme. You cannot eat or drink gold. It does not shelter you. And yet, there's a lot that appealed about it. Its shininess, its durability, and perhaps especially its relative rarity. Not everyone could get their hands on gold, just like how not every hunter-gatherer could get his hands on the most sought-after of nutrients. Human beings naturally desire the rare, because there is, in fact, a risk not to. 
We look to other members of our culture who are competing for a resource and we suddenly become convinced of its value. FOMO, or the fear of missing out, a term popularized by Comedy Central's Broad City, Rest in Wonderful Peace, is one way this manifests. Since the common is always there and easy to get, it makes sense that we would want to acquire the rare just in case we need it. If we miss out on something important to our survival, that's a big deal. And it's also a big deal if we miss out on something important to the community, to the in-group. And we naturally move toward popular trends to stay safe and to stay included. I remember the particular feeling of riding my bike to the comic book store and thumbing through the packs of Pokemon cards, bending them slightly as to not be noticed by the disinterested clerk. Rumor had it that the packs containing the rare and sought-after holographic cards were more bendable, more malleable. Once outside, we'd tear the packs open, shuffling through them desperately, dreaming of that first edition Charizard, that fiery roar, the sparkling, flaming stars behind it, the pinnacle of every pointless dreamer's collection. At this point, I understood the cards as an investment, and like most kids, I didn't really play the mysterious game that was related to them. They were simply symbols for something else. Symbols for the future. For all of human history, toys have taught children about the world, have helped introduce them to more complicated thinking, and have taught them how to be a productive and harmonious member of their community. So what do our most popular toys say about our American future? What skills did Beanie Babies groom inside of 90s kids? An introduction to the world of late-stage capitalism, the beating heart of our enormous national community. It seems that the riots do teach something about our values and norms, about our insatiable desire for more. The desire, it seems, we want to pass on to our kids. The toys, too, expressed both for children and adults our built-in FOMO, that scarcity heuristic pulling us toward the rare and making us no longer interested in it when it becomes the common. We care for these toys the way we seem to care for our own children. Careful, keeping them preserved and living perfectly under a metaphorical bell jar, a safe and sound investment, that is, if the market for their particular excellence doesn't bottom out. The bright colors of these collective fever dreams have now been lazily tossed aside. Binders of trading cards covered in dust. Beanie babies all mashed together in stretched out garbage bags. Cabbage patch dolls lying motionless on the folding tables of yard sales. And of course, Tickle Me Elmos with busted voice boxes, scratching out one more unbearable laugh. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, we've been hearing a lot in the news about violent video games and their effects on teenagers. Our episode coming in two weeks takes a careful look at the history of school shootings. I want to get a few things straight and I want to clear up a few misconceptions. It's going to be a difficult episode, but I'm going to try my best. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Assistant produced by Derek Smith, produced and edited by Clear Camo Studios, with research assisted by Tickle Me Elmo Obsessed and Tinky Winky Purse Carrying Riley Smith, and voice acting by Will Rogers. Thanks as always for listening, and make sure you come back for our mini episode next week on the urban legends surrounding Furby. 
Check out our episode from last week on our live show and follow us on social media to make sure you can see the amazing videos from it. You can find those links in the show notes. Until then, I hope you have a great week. And if anyone remembers that teeny beanie baby jingle, please let me know. Oh, and if anyone wants to send me a fidget spinner, I lost mine a while ago and I really miss it. Say, lovey. Teeny beanie babies at McDonald's. Teeny beanies, teeny beanies. Teeny beanies, teeny beanies. Teeny beanie babies at McDonald's. Teeny beanies, teeny beanies. Teeny beanie babies, babies. McDonald's, McDonald's babies. Teeny beanie babies at McDonald's. Teeny beanie babies, teeny beanie babies.